Awesome. So we are live and streaming. Hi, and welcome to Let's Talk. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, this is going to be a roundtable Q&A on mental health and the Black community. I'm Rustamo Coker, founder of Downtime. We're a service that connects people to local therapists. I'm joined today by Anika Wilson, the CEO of Nobody Greater LLC. Nobody Greater LLC is a specialist in leadership consulting and PR. Anika has spent the last two decades working in mental health, both the public and private sector. We will have some other guests potentially join us as we're going on, but you know, Anika, I'm going to toss it to you to give us a quick introduction of yourself and what you're passionate about before we launch into the Q&A. Hello, everyone. My name is Anika Wilson, and I am the owner of Nobody Greater LLC. And I created um, Nobody Greater after 20 years of working in mental health, law enforcement, corrections. Um, and case management and i wanted to do more in my community i just i'm wrapping up my master's in psychology so it has been a 10-year journey of me navigating life with kids with illness with mental illness within my family and all of these things and so in my business i like to integrate all of the things that people need that that i feel are being overlooked in the service industry um and so i I now lead conferences around the country. I now have a podcast and I do any and everything in my power to help spread education and awareness around the topics that I think are extremely important to us today. That's really interesting. So how did you get into mental health? What was your first job and what, what inspired you to work in the field? Well, um, the first thing, I was sexually assaulted at the age of 14. And with that, you know, PTSD wasn't really seen as something that happens outside of war or outside of, of the military. And so I got labeled with bipolar. You know, here's this girl that doesn't know how to deal with her issues and her emotions. And that label kind of carried on with me for, for years. And then it was, oh, no, just kidding. She has ADHD. You know, and so they, they said her intellect is extremely high and she's all over the place and all of these things. So over those years of, of that happening, in addition to my mom having extreme PTSD from several incidences that happened, in addition to her serving in the military, I just kind of saw how people were treated and how there were a whole bunch of missing links to what was going on. Um, I initially got into criminal justice because that injustice that happened to me led me into criminal justice. So my bachelor's degree was in criminal justice. I immediately got a job in the prison. I wanted to follow law enforcement and then I got injured and I was no longer able to do that. And so then I got into child services and investigations and then over full on to mental health. And that's when I started my master's in psychology. And it was what opened my eyes to, to a world that we're not taught. And so I've been kind of diving deep into that for a long time. And what I've noticed is as I kept getting jobs at substance abuse treatment centers or nonprofits for, you know, mentally ill or to be a little case manager, just going in somebody's house and, you know, just put a bandaid on this, but don't really fix any issues. You know, I kept getting those jobs and it just, it wasn't right for me. There was, it wasn't enough. And so um, this thing about mental, mental health has gotten worse over the years as I've been researching and trying to get educated on it. I'm watching the impact that it has on the world 
world. And now everybody knows what trauma is because everybody's experiencing trauma. And whereas and we were given all these labels back in the day of, you know, oh, well, she's just schizophrenic or she's just bipolar. She just can't handle it. You know, all these things, um, they're now being talked about more. Um, they're still not being talked about to the, the extent that they really need to be. So it just, it just means that we have more work to do. So I'm just all in. So going back to this conversation of, I have a problem, specifically within the black community, do you believe that there's a struggle, a silent one where nobody is talking about mental health challenges or there's a misunderstanding as to what a mental illness is? Yes, I was literally just talking to my 14 year old about this because Lark Voorhees was on Oz today and I watched her on Saved by the Bell and she was getting offended because the mom came out and said that she had bipolar. And of course, when somebody hears that word, there's a negative connotation that goes with it immediately. You know, uh, hang on, we've got uh, somebody joining us right now. Let's see. Could be. This is challenging. Let's see. Da, da, da. There we go. Hey. Hey. How's it going? We are we're just getting started with our live stream and the event of um, mental health in the Black community. Um, here we have Anika Wilson, who's the CEO of Nobody Gear LLC. She was just getting started with introducing herself, and and we're getting into the first set of questions. Maybe you can give us a quick introduction of uh, of who you are. Okay. Well, I am Shandrika Cook. I'm a licensed professional counselor. Um, I have my own private practice called the Cultivation Center, where we marry ministry and mental health together. Okay, wonderful. Hang on. Sorry. Let me just see if there's some more live stream. Hang on. Okay, we're good to go. Sorry, I'm just getting some messages from my team and they're telling me about the live stream on the other end, just making sure that everything is going well. Sorry about that. Um, all right. So back to this first question, um, I had just asked, asked uh, Anika, maybe uh, you can tell us your perspective on whether you believe there is a silent struggle within the black community with regards to what a mental illness is and whether we're talking about and having a conversation about mental illness. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a huge struggle. I think uh, we've always been taught um, the ability to what goes in house stays in house, and so now we have these labels of crazy. Um, that crazy uncle in the back who really is suffering from PTSD, um, who may have been a vet. Um, we may have that depressed grandmother who is trying to push forward, but in the back of her mind, she has the title of being the strong black woman. And so she can't be in a place of weakness. Um, we may have that male uh, um, father who is trying his best to be the greatest provider because in his mind, he's always been taught to 
to provide, but he doesn't know how to love or accept love or be comforted in love or be able to feel love. And so therefore he keeps pushing. So most definitely we are not having these conversations. We have masked them with uh, glorified trauma. Being a strong black woman has has caused us to be paralyzed to not be able to express our feelings, to express how we are, because if we express it, we feel like we're losing our strength. Um, being a man is always, I can't be feminine. I can't show emotions. I can't cry. And so we have these paralyzing titles of what masculinity looks like, what strength looks like. And so we find ourselves just paralyzed in, in glorified traumas. I'm a man because I provide. I'm a I'm a strong black woman because I know how to pick up the pieces, not talk about it, and keep pushing. And in reality, we're suffering physically, which is why we at the top of the list of heart issues and high blood pressure and and even mortality when it comes to giving birth because we are found to be quote unquote strong. So yes, we're not good with it. How does this? passed down from generation to generation? Does it pass down? And what's the impact of that on your children and development? Oh, <laughs> generational trauma is so, it still goes on to this day. Um, when we see things that are going on currently, I'm really, and, and I'm praying for the generation that is still from civil rights era that is now dealing with this because I'm sure there's a PTSD moment happening for them when it comes to this, because this is a trauma. This is something they endured 50 plus years ago and now they're enduring and now they feel like they've settled, they've fought um, and it's being passed down for generation. And we can see that even um, and how we respond to the cultural outbreaks. We we see the parallel of how one generation 50 plus years ago is now being parallel to a generation 50 plus years later and how that is still a traumatic event. Um, I was just talking to a friend about lynching and we see that now, how we may not even see the bodies, but the position, they may show from the knee shins down and we automatically feel this trauma that comes into place. Um, and if you hear the sun strange fruit, it automatically takes you back to that place of lynching. And so to hear now in 2020, in the 21st century, that lynching is still going on and it's still being covered up. It's just another way that trauma is being passed down from generation to generation. And you got anything you want to add? I was just thinking about attitudes, you know, the attitude around mental health, the attitude about us getting help. You know, you know, you're not supposed to ask help outside of the house. You know, our parents taught us that. So in going to therapy and getting counselors and getting any type of crisis intervention, we have a negative attitude towards it. You know, and those mm -hmm. of us who went into the profession, I know when I went into law enforcement, I was a sellout, you know, even in mental health, you know, people know what we do, but do they respect what we do? Do they listen to what we say? No, mm -hmm. they don't because the attitude surrounding our culture is that, as she said, we we manage it, we maintain it, we we just wear this armor of being a strong black woman or being the provider or being the man, and 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 having this this attitude about vulnerability that that you know we can't talk about vulnerability because that makes us look bad, it makes us look weak. No, actually, it makes you look strong because you need to be healthy. And if you're ignoring these things, it's it's breaking up our families. 
it's breaking up, you know, it's keeping us from having success in jobs because we're experiencing traumas in our homes and outside of our homes. And because we're not talking about it, it's tainted. It's just, it's a cancer that's just growing because we were taught not to talk about it, not to bring it up. No, that's not what that is. You'll be fine. You know, just don't worry about it. So the attitude that that goes all the way back to us not being able to get help, us not being able to trust anybody, that started back in slave days. We couldn't talk to, to the Massa and his family about, you know, what was going on. They didn't care. But that's mm -hmm. not our reality today. And we have to progress. And because we haven't, then we're we're just living in, in this extended trauma. In addition to the, the generational traumas that are happening, you know, with it, we're not using the resources that are there for us because we still have this mentality that it's not for us. So what's the solution? What are more, give me a few actionable things that we can do within the community to start shifting that back to a place where we can have a dialogue, we can be more aware and we can, we, we can educate ourselves on how to get help. I, I'm gonna go with um, with what I'm trying to do is the church. I mean, that is our um, foundation as a culture. That's where we go to. Um, whether you're spiritual or not, you find something that's higher than you um, to be in a place of safety when you're going through. When you have run out of answers, you go somewhere where you feel like the answer should be. And so my main goal is to really educate the church. When you educate the church, because they are the biggest influence in our culture, when you see history, you see people in the church. When you see the marches, when you see um, what leaders gather, they gather at churches. And so when you are able to have open-minded leaders, here's the key thing, open-minded leaders who don't see this as just a demonic thing, life after the altar, life in the pews. I've come up with a strategy, PTC. D, post-traumatic church syndrome. And so we have to realize that that goes into play, that there is a such thing where we can be hurt because pastors have come into the mindset, all you need is the Bible. Yes, I'm a believer. I truly believe that the Bible and God is one of the many benefits. But there's some scriptures that talk about us being counselors to each other. There are some things that talk about us being encouragers to each other. Um, there are so many scriptures that talk about the relationship of what a therapist is that we don't want to label it. But that's exactly what it is. There are scriptures about therapists and counselors within the Bible. But we kind of mask them because that may mean I'm crazy. And so given that knowledge that going to a counselor or a therapist doesn't mean you're crazy. doesn't mean that you cannot live life. It doesn't mean that you're unstable. That means that you're seeking help and you need someone to kind of help you process the ideas. So getting in the fact that we realize that counseling is not about being crazy, but it's really about creating the atmosphere to um, exchange ideas and process those ideas out. So if I were to kind of Arista, it, Arista, can you hear me? Hey, Avis, is that you? Yes, I couldn't get off from my from my desktop for some reason, but That's I wanted great. to comment on what the the last uh, what the last speaker just said. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I love that term, post traumatic church syndrome. Uh, but yeah, I have two friends who are actually ministers and therapists too, so they so they are able to infuse that into um, you know infuse, and they have. Uh, licensed therapists in their churches. So it's in Nashville, there's a church that has licensed therapists too. So it's, get, it's, it's getting more traction 
And then, like, uh, there have been some, like, uh, Richard Smallwood has a book out, and he talks, and it's about his mental health issues. And so it is getting more traction where it, it, it can be talked about more openly in the church. Hey, Avis, can you give a quick introduction of who you are so everybody can get familiar? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. So Jock is trying to get on, too, so I don't know where he is in that process. But uh, so my name is Yavis Witherspoon. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama, and I uh, co-founded an organization called Brother Let's Talk. And so what Brother Let's Talk is, is a group of black male mental health professionals. I'm not male, of course, but uh, and what we do is we go out into the community and our goal is to uh, stop the stigma and address the stress among black men and boys in regards to their mental and emotional wellness. So we do a lot of community events. So everything we do is in the community. And we have uh, male-only events, and then we have all-inclusive events for awareness and education. And we do trainings as well. Awesome. Uh, the, the first question, and I, and I suppose one thing that I'd like to add to this is it sounds like if we go to people with influence within the community and if they are open and on board, they have the ability to influence the community and say, hey, look, you're not crazy. Therapy is legitimate. You can go and talk about the challenges that you may have. And that's kind of the, the takeaway of what I'm what I'm hearing from this. Uh, yeah, Angela's just joining us to, to tinker around here with some of our settings. So, so don't mind her, she works at downtime. She's in charge of our, she leads our care coordination team. So. Downtime, obviously, oh, okay. being a service that connects people to to uh, to local therapists. She's a social worker, and she does a lot of she does all of that work. Um, yeah, but the first question was, and I think you might mirror a lot of what's already said. But the first question was, what do you see as a big challenge within the Black community? Do you believe that mental illness is is something that's not spoken about within the community, and and it's not well understood? Well, I think it's not spoken about. Um, as, well, well, it's getting better. It's getting better. But uh, it's, I mean, normally there's someone in everybody's family that's, uh, that has mental challenges. And so, you know, in, in growing up, you know, you may hear about, you know, the, the crazy uncle or the, you know, the stay away from them or they just got some problems. So it's always been someone that, you know, that people just kind of shy away from. But I think now it's becoming, and then we can look at such a, uh, you know, it's like it's, it's such a damning thing to happen. Uh, I, I think I told you this story. My, I have a nephew who's 30 now. When, when he was 18, he was uh, diagnosed as a par uh, with paranoid schizophrenia. And my sister, and I've been in mental health all my life, all my career, been in mental health, but my sister, Said, I would rather for him to have a brain tumor because at least I know I can get it cut out than for him to have this mental health issue. And so, uh, you know, and that's how sometimes people see it. And, you know, fortunately, you know, he's had some struggles. He spent one year, he spent seven months out of 12 months out of in mental health facilities. But now as long as, he, he's, he's, as, long as he's stable on his meds and goes to see his therapist, He's doing fine. He could be doing better, uh, but he's doing fine. Um, so, you know, it's just we, we, we've got to get past that. It's like such a death sentence almost and instead of it's something that we can live with and learn how to thrive with.
Hello? There we go. Sorry, I forgot to unmute. Um, okay. We're gonna, yeah, so this, <laughs> this next question is for everybody. We're just gonna go around. Um, from your respective experiences, what do you see as the recurring mental health challenges and themes uh, that you've seen while working within the community? And of course, this goes beyond what you've already spoke about with regards to the, the stigma. So outside of the stigma, what else have you seen that's like a recurring theme? Well, right now, it's a lot of anxiety and, and depression. That's what I'm saying right now. I would definitely, I definitely say that um, it's also generational or lack of acceptance. It's a lot of things that have been passed on from generation to generation. For instance, PTSD, uh, bipolar, schizophrenia, anxiety. I'm seeing a lot of, of families. I've been a, a friend to a lot of families where I'm seeing that there are things in the family that have gone, you know, and they're like, oh, the, my husband was like that. His uncle's like that. And they're just, there's a lack of acceptance. It's, it's denial. They know that it's a thing. They know that it needs to be treated, but they just choose not to. So I'm seeing that happening from generation to generation. And for instance, a lot of it, even with girls and teen girls, is a lot of anxiety and depression and body dysmorphia and all these kind of things that are happening. Um, and it, it seems to just be happening. And it's almost like people are turning a blind eye. And they can't really ignore it because it is being talked about more than it has been in the past. But people are just choosing not to accept what's happening. So that's that's what I see the most. One thing that I've been seeing, just echoing what everybody else says, but lack of identity, people not knowing um, their identity, trying to figure out who they are, uh, especially with our next generation, um, seeing what they're seeing on TV. Um, and realizing that um, the revolution is being televised. And with that being said, they um, are not able to deal with the televisation of the revolution, of all this coming back at them um, as far as Facebook, social media, all the platforms. So that's been another thing. And hey, Ms. Yaff, is this Shandrika? <laughs> hey, Shandrika, how you doing? Good. <laughs> Aristo, uh, Doc said he's He's waiting in queue, I think, to get in. Yeah, he's he's here right now. Okay. I'm here now. Hello, everyone. Hey, we're just going to take a minute here um, as we're going to, I think, republish the event to another stream so everybody can take a, just a two-minute pause.
Okay. So thanks for joining us, Jock. Um, would you like to give us a, a quick intro to, to everybody here? Hey, everyone. I'm Jock Austin, licensed professional counselor in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, you want to talk a little bit about Black Lives? Uh, sorry, brother, let's talk. Yeah, Brother Let's Talk is a nonprofit um, we put together, uh, Yavis Witherspoon as well, um, along with uh, some other uh, black mental health professionals whose purpose was to um, stop the stigma and address the stress. What we wanted to do was uh, provide a safe space for men of color to come together and identify um, whatever stigma or myths that exist that prevented them from seeking counseling. As counselors, we, we knew that oftentimes when black men went into counseling, the person that sat across from them didn't necessarily look like them. And so we know in, in order for counseling to be effective, there has to be a rapport, not saying that only black men can understand, only black therapists can understand black men. But what we wanted to do for those, for those brothers who that are walking around with uh, unaddressed trauma, that are walking around trying to deal with issues um, from years past and then affecting their family. What we wanted to do was with them is uh, let them know that it's it's okay and it's helpful to, to be able to talk about it. And so what we did was uh, went out into the community in places where men um, normally gather and talk, and that is uh, their barbershop but we had uh, mental health professionals facilitating the conversation. And so we went beyond that into community events where both men and women were invited. And um, those community events would address topics such as um, um, their relationship and their mental health or um, uh, parenting. Um, and um, so what we wanted to do really was just try to bridge that gap that exists between men of color and the mental health community. You're muted. Thank you. Yeah, we're two or three questions into the event. Um, however, we might be switching streams in a moment. Uh, let's see, just so we can, hang on. So, so sorry, guys. All right, well, we'll just keep on going. Uh, Jacques, the first question, and I know that you're, you're I mean, we're, we're, we're playing catch up here, but I asked, do you believe there is a, um, a silence around mental health within the black community? And do you believe it's something that's not spoken about um, uh, within amongst each other, amongst ourselves? Do we stigmatize mental illness and not really understand what it is? Uh, yeah, we do. I remember, um, I, I guess, sharing a little bit about my past. My uh, grandmother's sister, my great aunt, for years I told, I was told, we used to, you know, um, our vacation was, um, was sort of uh, maybe like once a month, we'll uh, get in the car, my grandmother, my grandfather, um, maybe my uncle, my cousin, and myself. And our family vacation was into Tuscaloosa to Bryce Hospital. 
to visit my grandmother's sister who um, was a patient there for years. And um, for those that are familiar, Bryce does a psychiatric hospital that was located in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And so that was the only time we, as a family, went out of town and it was to visit her. And I think at that time I was maybe nine or 10 or so. And um, I was always told that she, she was a nervous breakdown a nervous breakdown. That's how, you know, we kind of identified, you know, um, uh, a mental health issue. They had a, a mental health breakdown. And so also within the back, black family, there's that, that idea that what happens in this family stays in this family. You don't go off and tell nobody what's going on in here. And I saw, I think a lot of that fed into that uh, stigmatizing. I mean, there are many other uh, instances throughout our history as, as, uh, as black Americans that uh, justifies our um, hesitation towards not just the medical field, but the mental health field as well. But um, in, I guess that's an example of what I went through coming up that kind of, you know, fed into that you, you know, you were told, I guess uh, it was uh, mental health. I mean, I'm sorry, you were told it was just a, a, a nervous breakdown that occurred and, um, and so it, you know, that misinformation, I guess, didn't allow for further questions to, you know, talk about um, what goes on in, in mental health, you know, what exactly occurs and why might someone see a psychiatrist versus a counselor. And, there, you know, I found with in our barbershop talks, a lot of times some of um, um, our attendees still don't quite understand the difference in, in, the, uh, in the disciplines. But um, I think, yes, there does exist a certain uh, stigma and lack of awareness that uh, prevents a person from seeking assistance. How is this related to, or how does this um, touch generational trauma? Or, or how does this basically create a generational disadvantage that we see within the community? We were speaking about generational disadvantages and trauma. What, what does that mean to you? And from your perspective, what do you see personally? That a trauma experienced by my great, great, great grandparents still exists because I believe a lot of it is behaviors that are taught from um, how to address anxiety, how to deal with um, um, racism. You know, I think um, I was talking with a client today where he was talking about, I believe, his, his grandfather who uh, came up in, in the 20s where it was, you know, said that, you know, you treat and act a certain way towards whites. And so that was kind of fed on down the line, you know, and it's some of those behaviors that are that are kind of instilled because that first agent of socialization is the home. You know, you learn how to act, interact and react with the outside world initially through the interactions that you have at home. You know, there's an African proverb that says the ruin of a nation begins in the homes of its people. And it's the, the lessons that are taught to our children and either directly or indirectly because they see everything we do and they try to mimic our behavior. They can learn whether, you know, um, it's OK to be accepting of all people, regardless of uh, uh, race, gender, ethnicity or whatever. So can there be a challenge for 
individuals and so let's say I'm a, I, I don't I don't speak to my father um, there's a lot that's going on inside of me but I you know is it common for people to have a struggle in identifying what the challenges they have are a being empathetic with themselves um, and then knowing what to do with that emotion who to speak to how do you even have a dialogue with yourself how important is that that self-awareness and, and empathy Oh man, empathy is huge, but we can't generalize it to to everyone. Uh, I think an individual may be going through one thing and perceive it one way, and uh, where it's not as bad, another person look at it as the worst thing in the in the world. But um, that self awareness that has to occur, um, being able to, um, I guess, uh, recognize. Um, um, yourself um and you know what comes to mind is the gentleman that I, I spoke with and we're talking about that that identity and right now is a really tough time for him um because um he's uh dealing with um i guess just that that identity um he's biracial and um then he identifies as black but then um sometimes it may seem that those people are, are those people within his community don't accept him as that, and so there's you know there's a struggle of um, uh, what does it mean to be black? I mean, it, because I don't fit your definition, does that mean I'm not? You know, or you know, I, I've dealt with some times in the in my past where um, uh, some friends would say, you know, you you, you black on the inside, but you you white on I'm sorry, you black on the outside, but you white on the inside because I'm articulate. And and that's because I grew up in a home with educators and I, you know, get popped on the back of the head if I mispronounce the word, you know, and so that's part of my experience. And I, again, don't want to sort of generalize um, to all people, I guess. I hope that answered your question. You're muted again. <laughs> I thank thank you that Nika's here. I'm really thankful. Um, yeah, no, it's a you bring up a really interesting point and one that I can relate to. And I suppose my question is more related to if we have developed a culture where we don't always talk about the challenges that we have amongst within our own family or within anybody else. How adept have we become at identifying what our own challenge is? So you might experience an emotion, a strong emotion, but might not understand what the triggers are. Is that a concern? Yeah, I, I'll speak. Um, yeah, like this week or this past weekend, my friend asked me, why did you go to a PWI over the HBCU? And that's been a huge struggle uh, for me um, trying to identify that I was still black because I went to a PWI over HBCU. Um, not that I never wanted to go to HBCU, but the it was hard for them to understand that I got discriminated by HBCU because I went to a great school. Um, my high school was high ranking. Um, and so for me to apply to this particular HBCU, they wonder what my motives were. I remember getting the letter. I remember talking to my counselor at the time and they were like, um, they're wanting you to do this, this and this. And come. And I had a, a friend who went to maybe a Birmingham city school who wasn't so high on the rankings. 
and they gave them no issues. And if you looked at our transcript, everything looked a, looks alike except for that one thing, the differences in our schools. Um, and so coming back from single parent home, knowing how much HBCUs cost, I was looking at that um, and looking at the fact that I was getting a free ride at the PWI versus the HBCU. And so I've struggled even now when people ask me, why did you go to a PWI? Um, I struggled defining my blackness in that choice, struggled defining who I am and not feeling like a sellout because there are people in our culture that feel like if you went to a PWI over HBCU and you had the opportunity to go to HBCU, but you chose the PWI, then you sold out. You're not black. You're not this. You're not that. And so um, I think it's I, I think it's a fact of a matter of. I think we know who we are, but again, it goes back to those generational things, um, how people define black and we define black based upon a, a white male uh, ideology of what black was. And we still use that ideology to this day. We don't know how to get away from it. I think we know it, but when we get to it, it kind of is a struggle because that means we have to deal away with a history that we've been taught so it's it's more generational it's even it's like the light skin versus the dark skin um it's the biracial like um jock was saying the biracial person trying to figure out you're not black enough or you speak to white as a matter of fact i was reading an article where they were talking about you speaking white or acting white was more appreciated within the culture um than it was for you to act black and how people ridiculed for acting black over acting white so i think that's those are the things that we have to address and i think chandrick i think that that from a i'm older than you are and so i think and when i was growing up that it was more acceptable to go to a p pwi it's interesting because my mom went to uh to hbcus and then you know and then went to a pwi and then my older sister, my older sister went to FAMU and I ended up at Alabama, you know. So, you know, and I think it's just different. I think now people, there's more of the push. And I remember my best friend growing up, she went to Fisk and then transferred to where I was at Alabama, you know. So, and, and she, and, you know, that, you know, so that's just, I think it's different now. There is a push because now we push. You know, I pushed the, the kids in my family to go to HBCU. But, yeah, and it, and it has something something to do with your identity. Brother, let's talk, was called in. And, Doc, you remember this. We were called in to a PWI by some students because they said they needed to identify with some black men. And they called Brother, let's talk in to come and talk to them. We went for a couple of sessions and talked to them, and they were just they just needed to see some black men. And Jack, you may want to speak on that. Um, well, like like you were saying, they um, I think at that institution they said aside from the athletic coaches, there was only one black professor, and um, just wanted us to come in. They heard about what we were doing, and uh, I think what we had uh, done at another uh, local institution um, went into their. Um, their student organization and just came in and, and talked about some of the challenges that they deal with on campus being black on a predominantly white campus. That had zero 
fraternities or soror black fraternities or sororities. Zero. Anika, you want to add anything? Yeah, I was listening and I wanted to kind of encapsulate the one of the questions that you asked about what do we do to change the narrative in addition to identity and self-talk, what we've all been talking about. Um, the approach that I took as, as I've um, finishing my master's degree is I had to decide, did I want to continue in counseling? And I've chosen to do coaching. And what I think is, I think that if we can find a way to penetrate the system in a way that we are reaching our populations, such as church, going to these places and having the conversations and teaching people, you know, what they need to know. I, I often approach this as a total wellness um, philosophy because I started off my coaching career as a mental health coach and nobody signed up. And so then I said mental wellness because people are reluctant to, to do this just based on the language alone. And so we have got to find a way to meet them where they're at. And so when we talk, when Shandrika talks about identity, my last conference was on identity because I realized that I, I did it from a women's perspective. We're lost. We're, we, we know that we're a mom. And the first question you'll say, you know, hey, Anika, how are you? You know, tell me about yourself. Oh, I'm a single mom of three. That was how I identified myself or I identified myself as a daughter of a single mother or I identified myself as a black woman. I had all these, these things that had nothing to do with my character, nothing to do with my capabilities. But also I attended FAMU and I also attended Salem College. Um, and I had these two different experiences going to an all white girls private school, then finishing at a school that my mom was a professor at that I didn't want to go to because I lived there, you know, but I've, I've struggled with the same, the same things that everybody else struggles with as, as being a black individual, being a black educated individual. When I worked in law enforcement, I was a black female correction officer in the state of Florida in Rayford where they do uh, the electric chair where, you know, death row is. And, and that was the hardest experience I've ever had in my life. But I take all these experiences and try to figure out how, what, what did I need? What would have helped me navigate this journey? And I try to do that. And I think that going into the churches, creating nonprofits, doing things outside of the community contracted mental health agency. I worked for those. I hated them. We have to, to create programs and mentorships because a lot of people aren't in sororities. They're not joining these, these groups. So we have to try to find a way to, to access the people that need us. We have to speak their language. We have to educate them. We have to nourish them because it involves a lot of unlearning unlearned behavior. We have a lot of that to do in order to get healthy. And I think that we also, you said something to him about self-talk. I think it starts there. We have to learn that we deserve self-care, self-talk, time to ourselves, time to learn who we are. We're busy always being a wife, always being a, a mother, always being, you know, whatever. A lot of us are going to school later in ages, you know, in our 40s and 50s, getting, you know, our degrees. We're always waiting for the right time but we have to start investing in ourselves and investing in others in a different way. Awesome. That was really well put, very powerful. Um, this next question, and, and we've touched on this a lot. Uh, so a lot of it, you, might, you guys might be repeating yourselves. So I do apologize. Um, we often talk about mental health as if it's the same for everybody. 
However, does racism, discrimination, trauma, classism, sexism, do they all add additional barriers and challenges? In other words, do we also need to consider the role that culture plays in, in an emotional well-being? I always say this, and I'll say this one word, and I'm sure everybody will identify. Multicultural competency is definitely necessary. Uh, I think uh, what I hate about my white colleagues are, um, and, I, and I hate it's such a strong word, but that's the only word I can think about. What I strongly dislike, let's not say hate, I strongly dislike about some of my white colleagues is their ability to, to say that they're multi, uh, they're uh, multicultural competent, but they're not. Um, they'll say things and think it's competent, but they don't check with the culture to see if that's adequately being said or progressed. I can give a great example. We were in a conversation um, with some colleagues and they were talking about hair and the history <laughs> of hair. <laughs> and so one of them said that it was a multicultural class and they were talking about how the history of hair and it's all women's group um, affects the identity of a person. And so the colleague was talking about how fascinated they were and being educated by the African-American students on hair. And even though they were being educated, it was the words that they were saying on how they were being educated. They kind of offended some of my black colleagues in the meeting to the point I was like, can you fix your face? Turn your camera off <laughs> because it was so offensive. I, we, we got what they were trying to convey, but in their conveying, it was kind of offensive in what they were saying. And so they're not taking the time to learn the language of any, whether sex, race, culture, um, whatever it may be that you're coming in contact. If you're not being open enough to say, hey, um, I thought this and this may sound ignorant and being humble enough to say this may be ignorant of me, but still saying the question and be bold enough to ask the question and not feeling like, OK, I already know the answer. But just doing a check in and being bold enough to say, hey, I heard X, Y and Z. Is this true? Can you educate me on this? It's more greater than you just assuming and going with the information that you already have, because in the end, you'll find yourself being more offensive than being educated or being acknowledged or understood, which is, a, a, I think, is a reason why we're now in this place of tension within um, our profession of how to deal with the racist injustice, because there's not, there's one group saying, okay, let's talk, let me educate you, but there's another group saying, I got enough education. I agree with you, and we have got to uh, we, we've got to be willing, like you just said, to educate. You know, we, we get offended. Yes, we do. But we've got to look past that offense and be willing to speak out and say, you know, you may not want to say that like that or that's offensive. You know, I just say that's offensive. I had a coworker uh, who, who, who she was an older white female and she used to use the term gal. And I had to talk down several coworkers of mine who wanted to actually, you know, to, you know, say some stuff to her that would not have been nice. And I knew that she didn't know any better, 
And once I, I was able to talk to her, she met her first black person at 11 years old. And so we, we ended up having a talk, and, and I explained to her that that term gal was offensive and why it was offensive. And after then, she, she didn't use it anymore. And she uh, she appreciated because she did not want to be offensive. So I'm I'm glad you said that we got to be willing, you know, to also offer that opportunity presents itself. I think that we also have to recognize that yes, we actually are exposed to traumatic events more than other cultures. That's a fact. We are exposed to um, medical disparities more than other races. That's a fact. So when we look at, you know, how we approach it, we we have bigger barriers than than any other culture when it comes to our health, our wellness, our family structure, our community interactions. But I think we also have a responsibility to, as, as she said, that we have to be willing to educate, meaning we need more of us in the field. We can't, we can't, you know, handle the population if we are literally like a 56th of, you know, mental health professionals. You, we don't see us. And I think that that is one of the reasons why people don't go to therapy because they have to look for somebody that looks like them. I'm in Hawaii right now. And I was trying to find a therapist for myself and my daughter the other day. And I mean, I literally was looking for somebody for my 14 year old daughter that looked like her. Me, I can manage a little bit. I'm even willing to do virtual. But realistically, people don't look like us. And I think a lot of people took the attitude a long time ago that it's not for them or they've had one negative interaction, which was me. I mean, growing up, I, my mom, when my parents got divorced when I was six years old, my mom being a social worker, you're going to therapy. You know, but my whole life I had this negative connotation about therapists and therapy, you know, and how is that helping me when they're just digging and they're asking me offensive questions? You know, if I'm sitting here looking at this white counselor when I'm 14 and I've just been raped and the, the judge looks at me and says, oh, you're from a single parent home, no big deal. He admits that he did it and he gets two years probation, you know, and this happened in Montgomery, you know, and this was back right, in what, right. in the nineties. That was their attitude right. towards me. And I'm sitting here saying something happened to me, but this is their attitude. And the therapist is looking at me like, what's wrong with me? Why? And then they're labeling me bipolar. I'm not bipolar. I've been assaulted right. and I've been traumatized. So I think that that has affected a lot of people. A lot of people have these experiences that affect their mentality of what we do. But I think that we have to be resilient and, and reach them and teach them. And also, like I said, I do it in a coaching you know, perspective now of let's talk. Like, what, 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 are you, what are you facing right now? We'll talk about it. And I won't use terms. I won't say anything about it because it runs them off. And so even with spirituality, people struggle with their faith because they're mad at God because these things are happening. Okay, well, then let's take God out of it and let's talk about it. I could read scripture to you, but never say it. You won't know where I'm getting the knowledge from and the education from, but I'm right. spitting scripture to you and I'm, I'm letting God use me. So we have to be able to kind of be creative with our delivery because we know our people. They're smart. <laughs> they're creative. And they're coming from a place of pain. Something has happened. In addition to our, our generational curses and the, the things that we've been taught, we've had circumstances and, and traumatic events when we've tried to ask for help. 
you know, or we're being judged or we're being called names. Or, so we have to kind of take all of that into account in our cultural competency. And I think that that's something that only we can do because you can teach cultural competency in a book. They're not going to get it, period, any way you slice it. But I think it's up to us. I, I agree with you. I, I was uh, Yeah. You know, one thing, you know, when Jock gets the opportunity, he always encourages people, our kids and younger people to go into mental health because even like with psychiatrists, it's like, what, 2%, you know, so it's even lower than and then it's lower of males and black males in the mental health field. But I agree with you. Mm -hmm. it, it, with all of this stuff going on about, um, you know, George Floyd and so people have been talking about situations that have happened to them as teenagers as children that they never told their parents. So they've held that for all of these many years. And I mean, they're 30, 40, 50 years old or more now, and they're talking about it because it never left them. You know, that, that right. traumatic event of, you know, police pulling them over and all of that stuff, it never left them. And so, you know, so it's, it's ongoing. And so one thing that's, is, is that I like about Brother Let's Talk is that most of the in situations that the men have uh, talked about, you know, somebody in Brother Let's Talk either has experienced it or, you know, has ha has some kind of knowledge about it. And that helps the guys to just feel like, okay, well, I can't open up somewhat. I can open up, you know, and tell them because they kind of understand what I'm kind of going through, you know. So, and that's, that's important. I, so that's, and it's, I'm so glad, like, I'm so glad about downtown because we need something. I was looking for a therapist in, in Denver the other day for, you know, and I couldn't, I found one. And then he said, oh, I'm not in private practice yet, you know. And so it's, it's, it's needed. I, I was just, I just put it in the chat that with um, African-Americans, I think we have a language that only we can understand and, and it is an unspoken language. I can look at Anika in a certain way. She'd be like, mm -hmm, that's right, girl. And it's not something that we say, uh, but we know our nonverbal body language speaks so much for ourselves. And we talk about that as therapists, about the power of nonverbal body language. But when you're looking at the African-American uh, you know, culture, uh, we didn't have language. And so we use other ways of communicating. We talk about the thumbs, we talk about certain gestures that we have and our hands shaking our body language. So nonverbal uh, language is such something we can, um, we use all the time. And it's, and I feel like it's passed down from generation to generation and it's unintentional. And so like Anika said, we can't teach that. I can't teach somebody what that nonverbal means and how to determine that it means this over this or that over this. And so I think a lot of times that's the thing that we find out is the most difficult thing when go when it comes to therapy is that we want somebody like us because there may be times I may tell you a story and you know how to read in between the lines and know what the story is really about. And I always think about Taraja P. Henson, how she tells a story about how she was looking for a therapist for her son. She couldn't find a black therapist. But I also realized that a lot of time going with Jot said, a lot of people don't know the difference between a therapist and a psychiatrist. And so she felt like she needed to look for a psychiatrist. In reality, she would need to look for a therapist or a counselor. And so it was hard for her to look for somebody like that. Um, I also learned that in the South, 
which is crazy, <laughs> there are more black counselors here than there are in other places. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, I know at least 10 black counselors off the top of my head, but talking to colleagues that are in the Northern states or in the Midwest, it is hard for them to find black counselors. So I think that's another area that we have to really examine. Why is it in the South we, you can find us, but when you go to other regions that you think should be more uh, productive in seeing more black counselors, there's a there's not many. So that's another thing we need to address. I agree with you, Chantel. The South, you know, D.C., that area has a lot of black counselors. But you go, like you said, go to the Midwest and up north, uh, not Chicago, but like South Dakota, Wisconsin. That's where you don't have hardly any. So as an organization like Downtime, where our whole job is to promote therapists, what can we do to, well, first, is it a question of visibility? You say in the South, there are lots of black counselors. So maybe it's not as much of an issue of visibility, or maybe it is, I'm not sure, I don't want to assume, but what can we do as an organization to help promote uh, black therapists on our platform? I mean, are the, should we be searching more and, and getting more on our platform because they're there? Or is it, do we need to get in the schools and promote people to follow this path of education? What can we do to get involved? You need to think about where black people congregate. You need to go where black people are. And that's the thing about marketing. Who, who designed marketing? You know, we're out here on Facebook all the time running our businesses, but there's algorithms. There's there's things and barriers blocking us from getting to our target audience. But if you put a, a, a <laughs> if you put, I'm laughing because this is sad. If you put a flyer in a hair store, I'll see it. If you put a flyer, you know, at the barbershop, they'll see it. You have to go where we are. And so that's the reality. We're not in the health, um, the health centers. We, that's not where we go. And when we do go, it's urgent, it's a crisis, or for some people, that's where they get their, their care. But you have to think about where is the target audience? Who are we trying to reach and where, where do they congregate? And you got to think outside of the box because as a discharge planner, you know, I was a discharge planner in a substance abuse treatment center. Of course, I know about psychology today. I know where to find a therapist, but did my clients. No, if it wasn't for me, they wouldn't have had aftercare. So we have to think about those populations and the people that we serve. Where are they? That's where we need to be. So you feel that there's a significant of people that aren't going online and doing a search for a therapist near me and finding psychology today. They're, they're okay. That's interesting. You know, you know that we're good at saying to our friend that we need something, but we don't pick up the phone and ask Siri where it's at. We will talk about, it. oh, I need to go to the doctor. Oh, my kidney has been killing me for four months now, you know? But did they ask Siri where was, you know, a nephrologist? Of course not. So, you know, we don't do the work. And so as clinicians, as us trying to close the gap, it's up to us to do the work. So we have to literally, you know, put ourselves on a little platter and present ourselves to these people and say, now what's your excuse? And I agree, you know, and then, you know with, that with, is great. We know that. But like you said, the average person doesn't know to go to psychology today. And, you know, so it may be to go to not just like an Essence magazine or rolling out or, you know, look at the urban urban magazines uh, or newspapers maybe is a way to, um, you know, to advertise. But the thing is Facebook, social media is a, that you, you can use for free is like right now the best way to, to, to get any business out there. And, you know, because you got LinkedIn, you got, you know, uh, 
uh, Facebook, you have Instagram, you know, so those are Twitter, you know, you got certain things and, and just, you know, those are the easier ways to get the platform out there. Um, and then, you know, of course, you know, George. go ahead. Yeah, I was just, you know, following what Anika said in terms of going out into the community. And that's what Brother Let's Talk uh, thought to do early on. Let's uh, partner with uh, the local barbering commission and um, visit those shops once a month and let your clients know. And then talking with the barbers, what are some of the things that y'all are dealing with? Because we have barbers who would say, you know, someone you know, we'll come in and we don't necessarily know how to deal with this issue. And I know something, I know something eating up at the brother because I've been cutting his hair for two years. You know, I've been cutting his hair for 15 years. I know something going on, but I don't know who to send them to. And so what we wanted to do was address that and let them know that there are resources out there. And in these barbershop talks, a lot of times um, someone may not know that they already have access to counseling where if they're working and they may have an EAP that allows for anywhere from three to 12 visits or so they may and didn't even know that they could use that as a resource. And so again, you know, to go out uh, to identify and dispel that stigma, but also to increase their awareness about the field. All right. Um, and moving on to like the, 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 the end of our questions here. Uh, but building from the previous question, how does racism impact the development of a child? Is it something that can be ingrained in their development and hold negative consequences? And is there an opportunity for children to learn strategies to contract these effects and develop a, a superhuman empathy and resilience? Um, racism, <laughs> you're not born racist. Yeah, I mean, a person is taught to identify a certain group um, and, you know, um, I guess, I, I remember a, um, I was, I think about 18, no, 17, 18 years old, I just started college, um, was in Stone Mountain, Georgia. And um, this is during the time, you know, we'll sneak into certain apartment, apartment complexes and swim in their pool or whatever. And, and I was standing on the diving board and it was um, mostly whites there at the pool, uh, me and my roommates there. And I'm standing there getting ready to jump in and a child, um, she couldn't have been no more than eight, nine years old, a uh, little white girl yells, jump inward, jump. And I, I looked and I didn't get angry. I laughed, but then I began to feel sorry for her because I knew that she was taught to identify and address me that way. It's not something that, um, you know, she was, uh, that was born in her. It was uh, a behavior and a response that she felt like it's, you know, it's okay. It's all right. In front of everybody that's out here, I'm going to use that word. And that's who that person is to me and whatever definition that they gave to that word, because, you know, um, for, Blacks using that word is a different definition to a white person that's using that word. And, you know, it got to a point in my life where I said, OK, I'm not using it at all. And, you know, trying to because I think there was sometime in late 90s, mid 90s, you know, there was this push to, to bury and stop using it. And they, I think uh, a lot of community uh, leaders went to rappers to get them to stop using that word in their lyrics or whatever. And they were saying it was a, a form of artistic expression. 
And but there again, it depends on who's using it. But it's something, you know, like I said, the ruin of a nation begins in the homes of its people. And so you have to be aware of what it is that you're teaching your children because they're going to carry that on. You know, I can remember um, when I was in the military and uh, it was in basic training and there was a gentleman, white guy from South Dakota. And um, the only black person he had ever encountered were on television. Here he is, 18, 19 years old, and had never had a, uh, a physical interaction, communication with a black person. All he saw was those images that were on, on television. And so I, um, I took an interest because I wanted to, you know, I guess ex expand his knowledge about black people so he didn't, you know, it didn't fit into one category of what Hollywood thought black people should act and be like, you know, but it's, it's recognizing, you know, early on, you talked about that, the self-talk and self-awareness, you know, and a, a lot of people I think are walking around unconsciously biased to certain groups or, uh, or beliefs about certain people or whatever, but a person has to become aware of that, aware of what is the their initial reaction to seeing a black person with the hood on, you know, just because he's black and has a hood on, am I threatened or something? And then recognize, acknowledge, you know, that that's not the right way to think, you know, being able to shift that, that automatic thought, you know, be able to shift that, that way of thinking and learn to uh, see not not just black people, but all all people in a in a in a better light. You know, look at us at everyone as as human beings who just really trying to make it in this world, and trying to do for their family, trying to leave some legacy that you know when they do leave this world, they leave it in a much better place. You know. You know the thing it is. I believe it is taught. You know when you when we think when we look at our own life. You know, and I look at my life. That was that wasn't like certain things but you know you just you hear the family story so I was taught to not trust white people that was just you know just the stuff that happened to my mom over the years and you know and, and you know my older sister so I was just taught to not trust and you know when I had my first white friend I remember I, you know I really I really liked her and we got along great uh but that's you know, that in the back of my head, that was what I was taught to not trust. Now, uh, uh, fast forward, I look at my nephew, my oldest nephew. His, I, I used to laugh at him because he was the only black person, all black, you know, with both parents being black in his peer group. So everybody else in his peer group came from a biracial, uh, came from an inter interracial family, which means that his, his view of of life is so totally different and his view of of other races and and all, it's so totally different he's so much more open and uh than than i was so you know I, it is taught and i think you know from friendships to just things that you hear about in the in your household so um so we, you know, we have to look at our own stuff too as well as theirs Ika. I was gonna say it's definitely taught, but I think that there is a way for us to teach our children how to deal with it. And I think that's through empathy and education. 
a lot of people aren't exposed to um, to African Americans on a level where they know what it is to be one, to live the day and age of one, to be married to one. A lot of my my white female friends are posting because they they have black husbands, and they're posting right now that that when people said to them, were you ready to marry a black man? Were you ready for the ride that you were gonna go on? That they had no idea what that meant. And you do have a lot of people who think that they're aware. You know, they think that they know what something means. You know, when I married my husband, he says, you knew what you were getting into marrying a military man. No, I know what people think or what I think of a military man, but does that mean that I knew what I was getting into? No, because there's so many parameters that go along with it. And I think that you have different levels of racism. Some of it is is not necessarily intentional. You know, some of their parents shielded them from reality, shielded them from, you know, kind of instilled fear to keep them from going out and being friends and dating and things like that. They don't necessarily hate it. They just weren't around it because they were making their parents happy. And then they get out into this world and they go to college and they explore. And some of the ignorance is not necessarily malicious, you know? And so there's different things that we have to take into account when we talk about this issue. But I think the biggest thing that we can do as, as African-Americans, as therapists and as parents is prepare our parents, our, our children, equip them, equip them, which is what we do anyway. We've always done it. But I think that as this day and age is different than our parents and the generation before, because as she says, she was taught not to trust white people at all, period, point blank. Don't ask any questions. That's just how this is. But nowadays, I think we have to equip our kids because we have to, um, we have to prepare them to, engage with whatever may come. The reality of it is every time my black son and my black husband leave the house, something could happen. It happened to me. I got pulled over twice because my hair was shaved in the back. So it's happened to me twice. So at the end of the day, we still have to get jobs. We still have to work. We still have to work in the community. And it's everybody's job to educate, inform, and empower each other because we have got to break these generational curses, whether it be racism, whether it be mental health, whether it be wellness, whether it be, you know, family dysfunctionality, whatever it is, we've got to just break and denounce all of it and just start with self-awareness, informing and educating each other and our community as a whole. I agree with you. And the thing what I was trying to point is that it was, I don't think it was intentional. If nobody actually said, don't trust white people, it was just what was heard, you know. You know they didn't give me, yeah. And so we have to be intentional because I think a lot, a lot of stuff that happens in families is not intentional. So we don't know what children, are, what messages they are, they're, they're getting. So yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. It does have to be intentional. And that's why I say it, it's not necessarily malicious. It's just something that happens. You know, there was no malice intent. It's just kind of how it's been. I think this is a good segue um, into the questions that we received from the crowd. So I've, I'm going to distill it down to one because we had s some questions that are quite similar. And um, if I can say it succinctly, what, what can people do? People that are outside the black community, what can they do? What's something actionable and something simple that they can do to make a difference um, in understanding what's going on. You know, I've been 
uh, talking to people about this all for the last two weeks. And um, so it's two, two, and it's two different things. I think white women are more, are more willing, you know, to learn and to, and, and you know, whether it's the reading books, watching videos, watching movies, uh, you know, watching podcasts, uh, just from uh, education, educating themselves and their children and, and being allies. I think that the, the challenge is, and this is the question I've been asking for the last week and a half, what, where are the white male allies to black men? And that's what I'm getting, you know, kind of like, uh, uh, you know, do, do, they, do you have any black male allies? I mean, white male allies. Do black men have white male allies, you know, so who are willing to do the work, you know, to, to read a book, to, you know, talk, listen, listen. Um, and that, I think that's what's different because all the people that I've been encountering is, you know, minus one or two have been white women that, you know, yes, what, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And, and, you know, so definitely, you know, education, you know, through books and, you know, and then go to stuff, you know, go, go to events, go to plays, go to, uh, go and just kind of infuse, learn about the black culture. I mean, we go to stuff, you know, you know, we go to stuff, go, so learn about uh, the black culture. I think that's one thing that definitely can be done. And then go to museums, you know, go to the African-American Museum in and, and, uh, D.C. and the one in Montgomery, the, uh, the you know, EJI's uh, memorial. Go to that. Go to Rosa Parks. Go to museums and just soak up the knowledge. And then, of course, you know, Donate, donate to organizations, donate to uh, colleges uh, to help to, uh, to for the work to continue going. So that's that's what I think. I think um, engage in conversation with people. You know, talk with your coworker who you know you hadn't been talking to. You know, go out and meet that neighbor that that moved in, you know, down the street, you know, and just um, find opportunities uh, to have conversation and where you find that, again, that self-awareness, where you find that um, that conversation challenges some bias that you possess, you work to remove it. You know, it's through, um, you know, being immersed in the culture, you know, and that is just uh, talking with people because one black person is not going to give you the full definition of the entire black culture, you know, it's, and nor will one white person give you a full definition, everyone within, you know, within that population, but it's the more people you talk to, you know, creating friendships with people and um, getting outside of, um, I guess, whatever bubble that a person may be, may have existed in that uh, caused them to, uh, shudder when they see a black person coming their way, you know, on, on the sidewalk, you know, it's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You know, I shouldn't have to feel this way. It's not that black man's fault that I feel this way. Recognize that I feel this way because of whatever perception or thoughts I have about that person. And so being able to, to challenge that and work to, um, uh, work that out of, uh, I guess out of, uh, your way of thinking. So um, if there's one thing that you can leave the audience with, uh, what would it be? 
Um, I, uh, Anika said it earlier, uh, empathy and the capacity to understand what another person may be going through, but then um, apply that information in how you make your decisions and how you move forward. Being willing to understand uh, another person's plight, I believe uh, allows for some reflection to uh, on how you're perceiving the world. And then I, I would think you would want to try to assist in some way when you recognize that this person has a need. Um, and then you know, again, that, that self-awareness, what, what are some of the messages that you've been taught about um, one group of people or another that um, you're just not comfortable with? You know, are you, when you're in that conversation of uh, in a group of people who all look like you and somebody makes that derogatory comment, do you speak up and say, hey, you know, that's, that's not right? Or do you just kind of sit back because you're afraid of being sort of singled out? You know, it comes time where we have to challenge that, um, we have to challenge racism wherever it, is, it exists, in the home, in the office, in the community, wherever it is, and someone at, you know, standing up and speaking out. Um, you know, I found out in, uh, I guess, going through college that, you know, sometimes you're sitting in there and you're kind of scared to ask a question because it may be the wrong question or something like that. But then you ask that question and then it's like, you see a few people shaking their head because they were thinking the same thing, you know? And so when you speak out at that time and say, hey, whoa, you know, don't don't use that word or don't talk about them like that. There may be someone in that group thinking the same thing, but you had that power to stand up and say something. I would say make an effort to make it better. There are tons of suggestions here. And it, it a lot of times we we condone our ignorance, we condone our negativity, we condone our past, we condone a lot of that. Stop, just just make an effort to make it better. As he said, go go meet a neighbor, go out to eat with somebody, you know, um, join a group, do meet up, find somebody that has an interest in in something that you do and just get to know somebody. Just make an effort and stop stop trying to isolate and and live in that that negativity. Just make an effort to make it better. Incredible. Um, this has just been, I mean, hearing everybody talk, uh, it's great to hear that wisdom um, and the perspective. And of course, I, I believe our audience is going to be is extremely um, kind of over, over the moon to be able to get such a, a granular perspective. Uh, so thank you, everybody who's watching. Uh, this is the first of a series of events. Uh, do stay tuned and do watch out for our Facebook page. We will be posting more information about further events. And of course, we will be reposting uh, the recording of this video. Thank you for watching and goodbye.